Hey listeners, Estefania here. We hope you enjoy this preview of Noiser's newest podcast, Detectives Don't Sleep, the show that takes you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. If you enjoy it and want to hear more, subscribe to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts. There are loads of episodes available to binge right now, and you can tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. It's Sunday, November 15th, 1959, and we're in Kansas. They call it the Midwest, but it's pretty much the geographic center of the United States. This is farming country. Nearly 90% of the state is devoted to agriculture. Cattle, sheep, soybeans, hogs, but more than anything, wheat. Everywhere you look, there's undulating fields of golden wheat. The wide horizon stretches in every direction. Here and there, the monotony is broken by towering grain hoppers. The sky has a crystal clarity to it, hard-edged, almost brutal. During the day, it feels like a place where there is nowhere to hide. At night, it's a different story. It's a land of remote homesteads, of small towns and even smaller villages. Holcomb in Finney County is one of those places. To look at, it's just a handful of buildings clustered around the post office and divided by the railroad. Not that any passenger trains ever stop here. The population of Holcomb is tiny, less than 300. But sometime in the early hours of this morning, it was reduced by four. Four members of one family, Herb, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon Clutter, were murdered in their own home. Special Agent Alvin Dewey of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation approaches the two-story Clutter farmhouse. At 47, Dewey looks the part of a classic noir detective, good-looking and wiry. He wears a dark suit and a Homburg hat. A former sheriff and FBI agent, Dewey is a seasoned investigator. But he's also a family man with two sons, Alvin Jr. and Paul, and a wife, Marie. What if something like this happened to them? This is the reason Agent Dewey has to catch whoever did this. Dewey pauses to take in the scene. Built only 10 years earlier, the Clutter family home is an attractive, modern house, standing on 3,000 acres of farmland. The blonde bricks of the ground floor are balanced by the well-maintained weatherboards of the upstairs. It looks like something out of a Norman Rockwell painting, and about as far from most people's idea of a grisly murder scene as you could get. Agent Dewey enters the house through an ornate porch. When Dewey was assigned to lead the investigation, he was 200 miles away in Wichita. He jumped straight into his car and drove to Holcomb without stopping. Normally on a Sunday morning, he would have been in the First Methodist Church of Garden City, seven miles from Holcomb. That was a Clutter's church too. 
Herb was a leading light there, and Agent Dewey was a good friend of the family. For him, this is personal. These people were his people. By now, the bodies have been taken away, but the place is still overrun by KBI agents, sheriff's men and officers from the Garden City Police Department. And in four separate rooms, the walls are still defaced by blood spatter. Dewey spots his KBI colleague, Special Agent Harold Nye, and asks him to take him through what they've got. Nye is another skilled and experienced investigator. Dewey's glad to have him on the team. Nye consults his spiral-bound reporter's pad. All four victims were shot at close range, though Herb Clutter's throat was also cut. All were bound with nylon cord, secured with skillfully tied half-hitch knots. The mother, Bonnie, and teenage daughter, Nancy, were found upstairs in their beds. Father Herb and son Kenyon had been taken down into the basement, where Herb was found lying on a large piece of cardboard in the furnace room. Kenyon was tied up on a couch in the playroom. Agent Nye closes his notepad and says there's something Dewey may want to see down in the basement. It's a surprisingly light and airy space for a cellar, with sunlight streaming through a number of windows. Nye leads Dewey to the furnace room. He points down to the blood-stained cardboard spread out on the cement floor. Dewey follows the direction of his finger and sees it. A bloody boot print. Could it have been left there by the killer? If so, it's the first direct evidence they have of an intruder's presence, rather than just the trail of destruction they left in their wake. It's almost as if they caught a glimpse of the murderer. Who was this person, and why did they kill the clutters? Agent Dewey struggles to come up with an answer to that final why. He's seen some bad things done by bad people, but he's never encountered anything as wild and vicious as this. This is a crime that will change Holcomb, no doubt about it, but it'll change America too. A new kind of horror, a new kind of evil has been let loose. Dewey vows that he won't rest until he's tracked down whoever left that bloody footprint even if it takes him the rest of his life. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we follow KBI Special Agent Alvin Dewey, as he takes on one of the most famous cases in true crime history, the quadruple murder of the Clutter family in rural Kansas, as told in Truman Capote's classic book, In Cold Blood. It's a crime that strikes at the heart of middle America and the post-war years. Something dark and violent drifts into town, leaving death, fear, and distrust behind. Four people are dead. But for those who survive, 
the wounds will never heal. From Noiser, this is the story of the Clutter family murders, and this is Detectives Don't Sleep. The Clutter family murders thrust Dewey into the limelight. He becomes the face of the investigation, the man the press turns to for answers, even when he doesn't have any. He does his best to calm the obvious anxiety that has gripped the area. But there's a limit to what he can say. This is an ongoing investigation. Besides, at this stage, there's very little they do know. Overnight, Holcomb has been transformed. It used to be a close-knit community, a place where people left their front doors unlocked. Suddenly, no one trusts their neighbor anymore, and any strangers are regarded with deep suspicion. Dewey gathers a team of crack KBI agents around him. The first theory they pursue is that this was a burglary that spiraled out of control. But if this is the case, the thief or thieves didn't do a very good job. There are just two missing items, a portable radio from Kenyon's room and a pair of binoculars. So maybe they were looking for cash? Except Herb Clutter never kept any cash in the house. Everyone local knew that. Which means if the motive was robbery, then it must have been someone from out of town. They must have been disappointed. The agents discover that Herb Clutter cashed a check for $60 the day before the murders. There was no sign of this money at the house. So, assuming that he spent some of it, the thief or thieves probably got their hands on, say, 50 bucks at the most. It doesn't add up to much of a haul. Certainly not when you consider the level of violence that was inflicted. It seems senseless. There's just no other word for it. Or maybe this wasn't a burglary gone wrong after all. Agent Dewey certainly doesn't think so. As early as November 17, 1959, Agent Dewey enters a memorandum on the file indicating that Herb Clutter may have been having an affair with another man's wife. In fact, it seems that Herb's infidelities were an open secret around town. Looks like pillar of the community Herb wasn't quite as upstanding as he was made out to be. So could a jealous husband be behind the murders? The name that comes up most in the gossip swirling around Herb Clutter is Mildred Lyons, wife of Herb's business partner, Ken Lyons. So Dewey has a quiet word with Lyons. He has to tread carefully because he can't even be sure if Ken Lyons knows about the rumors concerning his wife and Herb Clutter. Dewey broaches the subject by asking Ken Lyons what he knew about the state of the Clutter's marriage. Lyons' view is that Herb and Bonnie hadn't lived together as man and wife for the last 10 years. Next... A more delicate question. Did Lyons ever hear of Herb being unfaithful? According to Agent Dewey's records, Lyons tells him 
that he had, quote, never known Mr. Clutter to have an association with another woman, nor had he ever heard rumors to this effect. Of course he would say that, wouldn't he? But Agent Dewey is an experienced investigator, and he's the one looking straight into the man's eyes as he answers the question. He believes Ken Lyons is telling the truth. So if not a jealous husband, then who else might have a grudge against Herb Clutter? Agent Dewey believes that Herb not only knew his killer, but suspected his life was in danger. In recent weeks, Nancy had confided to her best friend that she thought her father had secretly started smoking. Herb was known to strongly disapprove of that habit, and as a strict Methodist, it would have been against his principles. It may be an indication that he was under considerable stress. Even more significantly, the detectives discover that Herb Clutter took out a $40,000 life insurance policy just hours before his death. Could this have been a sign that Herb sensed danger approaching and wanted to make provisions for his family in case anything happened to him? So, who was Herb afraid of? Who hated him so much that he wanted him dead? Maybe the answer lies in Herb's business dealings. Herb Clutter was one of the most successful farmers in the region. The New York Times even featured him in a 1954 article about modern agriculture, citing him as a great innovator. He had political influence, too, serving on a number of important committees. Anyone who achieves that level of success must have made a few enemies along the way. If this theory is correct, it means the rest of the family were just collateral damage, and a few token items were taken to give the appearance of a robbery. Of the many hundreds of leads that come in, most are stories of individuals who have grievances against Herb Clutter. There's a local businessman and his son who felt that they'd been cheated by Herb Clutter in a business deal. The two of them have been heard muttering dark threats against their wealthy neighbor when drunk. At one point, they even turned up on Herb's land. The confrontation got so heated that Herb was forced to chase them off with his gun. The two men's resentment festered. As early as a month before the murders, the father had been heard saying that every time he thought of Herb Clutter, his hands started to twitch. I just wanted to choke him, he is alleged to have said. Dewey sends an agent to track him down. They didn't deny their hatred for Herb Clutter, but claimed to have an alibi for the night of the murders. The alibi checks out. But there's the local man who reportedly bears a grudge against Herb. See, he blames Herb for shooting and killing his prized hunting dog, not the kind of behavior that endears you to your neighbors. Another KBI agent, 60-year-old veteran Roy Church, is sent to investigate. Agent Church takes a walk around the suspect's farm. In his barn, he sees a length of rope tied to one of the beams. Church finds a stepladder and climbs up to take a closer look at the knot holding the rope in place. 
a half inch. Exactly the same kind of knot that was used to tie up the victims on the clutter farm. Agent Church has a few questions for the embittered farmer. Starting with, where were you in the early hours of Sunday, November 15th? Oklahoma is the man's answer. And he has witnesses who can confirm it. As each of these suspects are eliminated from the inquiry, Agent Dewey is forced to confront one final theory, in some ways the most frightening, that this was a motiveless attack. A crazed killer drifted into town and went on a murderous rampage for no reason at all. Now let's just think about this. Not many strangers visit Holcomb. Those that do come in on the highway that borders the village to the north, Route 50. 3,000 miles of road stretching from one side of the continent to the other. In places, it's a bleak, lonesome drive. Route 50 predates the network of interstate highways that were built after the Second World War. But like them, it's helped to transform America. The sense of connectedness the highways bring is a part of the modern American dream. There's a dark side to the dream, though. The rise of interstate highways has been accompanied by another phenomenon, the interstate serial killer. These days, we're familiar with the concept of serial killers prowling America's highways, but in the 1950s, it's unheard of. The term serial killer hasn't even been coined yet. That doesn't mean that these individuals don't exist. They do. Detective Dewey pictures a faceless marauder drifting in on Highway 50 to wreak violence in America's heartland. They could have come from as far east as Ocean City on the Atlantic coast, or as far west as California. In other words, from anywhere in that unknown, threatening expanse beyond the horizon. If this is true, no one's safe. No one in Holcomb, no one in America. Because the same interstate highway that brought the killer into Holcomb could have taken them hundreds of miles away from Kansas within hours. In this era, communication between police departments is poor. The killer could resume their deadly activities without any local detectives joining the dots. Soon, a new piece of evidence emerges that makes the crazed killer theory even more frightening. The police identify a second footprint from a different pair of boots found on the cardboard in the basement, which means they could be looking for not one, but two crazed killers. The first print comes from a well-known brand of boot, Cat's Paw. The second has a distinctive diamond pattern. It wasn't visible to the naked eye, but showed up in the crime scene photographs because a diligent photographer bracketed his exposures. For Dewey, at least, this makes the crazed killer theory less likely. He can imagine one homicidal maniac going on an uncontrollable killing spree, but he struggles to comprehend two people with the same level of twisted psychology acting together Dewey's attitude may seem odd to us today, 
but it's a sign of how much things have changed since 1959. It's not entirely true to say it was a more innocent time. Terrible things still happened then, and there were twisted and depraved people, just as there are now. What was different is that most ordinary people just couldn't conceive of the kind of horrific crimes we now take for granted. There are other factors influencing Dewey's thinking. The killers were careful enough to retrieve all the discarded cartridges from the shootings. Now, this suggests control rather than frenzy, possibly even that the killings were planned. Agent Dewey comes back to his theory that this was a grudge killing, maybe even a contract hit. So far, though, he has no idea who's behind it. In the first days after the murders, the team is overwhelmed, not just by the horror of the crimes, but also by the sheer number of leads they have to process. For Dewey, the strain is off the scale. He's never faced anything like this in his career. His job isn't just to catch the killers. It's to reassure the public. He has to deal with scrutiny of reporters, questioning the detectives' every move, demanding to know why they haven't made progress. Not only that, Dewey himself is a member of the community affected by these crimes. He sees the impact the horrific events have had on his own family. He has to balance the public's need for answers against the needs of an ongoing investigation. With that in mind, he decides to withhold details of the footprints found in the cellar. Given the criticism he's facing from the press, it's tempting to provide them with news of this dramatic breakthrough. It would certainly take the heat off him, at least for a while. But Dewey knows that if this got out, the perpetrators would be more than likely to dispose of their boots, solid evidence that could link them to the crime scene. Meanwhile, a local newspaper offers a reward of $1,000 for information leading to the arrest of the perpetrators. Predictably, this opens the floodgates and more tips pour in, including one lead that blows the case wide open. Over 350 miles away at Lansing Correctional Facility, a man called Floyd Wells is serving a five-year stretch for robbery. On the evening of Tuesday, November 17, 1959, Wells is in his cell listening to his radio. The announcer's voice is grim as he reads out the top news story, the murder of a family of four on the other side of the state in the small village of Holcomb. Wells sits up when he hears the name of the victims. The Clutters. Years ago, before he got caught up in a life of crime, Wells worked on the Clutter family farm for a few months. Wells is in shock. Not only did he know the Clutters, he's pretty sure he knows who killed them. Wells wants to do the right thing, but he knows what happens to snitches in prison. He's seen guys stabbed with homemade shanks in the mealtime queue. Days go by as he mulls over what to do. Then he hears about the reward. A thousand dollars is a lot of money. It's enough to bolster Wells' conscience and overcome his fears about potential repercussions. 
Ten days after he's first heard the news, Wells pays a visit to the warden of the prison and tells him everything he knows about the murders. Earlier in the year, he shared a cell with a man named Richard Hickok. Wells told Hickok about the time he worked for Herb Clutter, mentioning that Herb had a safe on the premises in which he kept large amounts of cash. Hickok then started talking about what he would do when he got out. He was going to hook up with a friend called Perry Smith, and the two of them would go to the clutter farm and rob the place. Not only that, they were going to kill all the witnesses. Hickok even described how he would tie them up. Wells tells the warden that he didn't for a minute believe that Hickok would go through with his plan. Thought it was all just convict talk. But now... There's no doubt in his mind, Hickok's done exactly what he said he was going to do. The warden picks up his phone and calls Logan Sanford, head of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, with this startling news. There's a man in Lansing Penitentiary who knows who killed the Clutter family. Logan Sanford passes the information on to Agent Dewey. Initially, Dewey's skeptical. A convict who claims to have heard a cellmate plot the crime? He's obviously just trying to get his hands on the reward money. Even so, he sends an agent to interview Wells. One detail that undermines Wells' credibility is his insistence that Herb Clutter had a safe in which he kept large amounts of cash. It just isn't true. So the agent pushes Wells, giving him the opportunity to backtrack. But Wells sticks to his guns. Maybe he misremembered. Or maybe he was just trying to impress Hickok with a safe detail. Whatever the truth, Agent Dewey knows that he can't rely on Wells' testimony alone. He needs solid evidence that'll tie Hickok and Smith to the crime. On December 9th, 1959, he dispatches Special Agent Harold Nye and three other officers to Hickok's parents' home in a suburb of Kansas City with a search warrant. Not surprisingly, Hickok is long gone. In fact, his parents say that they haven't seen him for weeks. They tell Nye about the time not so long ago when their son had brought home a friend called Perry Smith. The two of them had disappeared on Saturday, November 14th, with Hickok returning alone the following day at around noon, the day the murders took place. Nye asks if they noticed anything odd about Hickok's behavior on that Sunday. They tell him that he seemed exhausted. He fell asleep in front of the TV watching a basketball game, which they say wasn't like him. Agent Nye notes it all down in his spiral-bound reporter's pad. Then, one of his colleagues calls out. There's something he needs to see. Agent Nye walks over to where his colleague is standing, and he sees a gun propped up against the wall. A 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, to be precise. It's a distinctive model, as the handle is decorated with an engraving of a hunting scene. Could this be the weapon that killed four members of the Clutter family in Holcomb? 
Nye asks Hickok's father if the gun is his. He shakes his head and confirms that it belongs to his son. There's something else, too. The agents also find a hunting knife at the house. Nye knows that Herb Clutter was attacked with some kind of blade before he was shot. Was this the knife that cut Herb's throat? Agent Nye nods in satisfaction as the weapons are taken away. On December 15th, the inhabitants of Holcomb notice two strangers in their midst who show a deep interest in the murders. They are the writer, Truman Capote, and his childhood friend, Harper Lee. This is Capote's first time in Kansas, and it's fair to say, Kansas has never seen anything like Truman Capote. He stands out from the Stetson-wearing locals, a short man with a distinctively high-pitched voice. He's wearing a light-colored trench coat buttoned up tightly to the neck. With tinted spectacles and slick black baby blonde hair, he observes his surroundings with detachment, taking in every detail and storing it up for future use. Openly gay at a time when homosexual acts are still a criminal offense in every U.S. state, Capote is bound to turn heads and set tongues wagging. Capote's a rising star in the American literary scene. In 1958, he'd published Breakfast at Tiffany's to great success. Now he's looking for a follow-up. After reading a brief article about the clutter murders in the New York Times, Capote believes he's found his subject matter. His companion, Harper Lee, is a talented writer too, though she hasn't yet achieved Capote's fame. Her great novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, will be published in July 1960. The locals are suspicious of Capote, but they warm up to Harper. She has an easy Southern charm that encourages them to open up and tell their stories. Truman Capote and Harper Lee quickly befriend the KBI agents, including Alvin Dewey. They carry out countless interviews with people who knew the clutters, though Capote doesn't believe in using a tape recorder or even taking notes. Instead, he claims to have near-perfect recall. Whether that's true or not, he also has Harper Lee on hand, and she does make extensive notes. In addition, Agent Dewey grants Capote unprecedented access to case files. It's a uniquely privileged position for any crime reporter. He's practically embedded in the investigation team as a live murder inquiry is going on around him. Some will argue that Capote's close relationship with Agent Dewey and the KBI distorts his account of the case. It's certainly true that he gives Dewey a central role in the investigation, which other agents will later dispute. Alvin Dewey is on record as saying, I never treated Truman any differently than I did any other news media. As far as showing him any favoritism or giving him any information, absolutely not. In the meantime, the hunt is on to find Perry Smith and Richard Hickok. With the recovery of the suspected murder weapons at Hickok's parents' house, they are now prime suspects in the Clutter murders. 
Special Agent Harold Nye is tireless in his efforts to track him down, driving thousands of miles to talk to people who may have information about their whereabouts. He barely sleeps and rarely changes his clothes. The intense workload takes its toll on his health. He feels himself coming down with the flu, but pushes through it. At times, the task facing him feels hopeless. He knows Hickok and Smith could be anywhere. If they had any sense, they would have crossed the border to Mexico by now. Smith's hometown is Las Vegas, so Nye heads there. Scouring the cheap rooming houses and hotels, he eventually gets a break. At one rundown dive, he spots Smith's name on the register. It shows him checking out on November 11th, four days before the clutters were murdered. Then, Nye receives information from police in Kansas City that a man called Richard Hickok has left a trail of bad checks. One of the victims of his check fraud managed to write down the license number of the car Hickok and another man drove off in. The car turned out to be a stolen 1956 black and white Chevrolet. KBI Chief Stanford Logan releases an all-party alert on the vehicle. License plate number JO16212. On December 30th, 1959, the car is spotted outside a Las Vegas post office by two eagle-eyed patrol officers. The policemen pull up in their squad car across the road and watch as a short-statured man comes out of the post office, carrying a cardboard box balanced on one shoulder. Unaware that he's being observed, the man places the box in the trunk. He then gets in the passenger seat next to another man who starts up the engine and drives off. The squad car tails the two suspects for about a half a mile across town. The men finally pull up outside a rundown rooming house. The patrol car draws alongside. The two police officers confirm the identity of the men in the car as Richard Hickok and Perry Smith. They tell Smith and Hickok that they're wanted in Kansas for parole violations and passing fraudulent checks. There's no mention of murder. One of the officers takes a closer look at the box in the trunk. Addressed to Perry Smith and apparently sent from Mexico, it contains a number of random items which Smith confirms belong to him and his companion. The policeman notices two pairs of boots. He picks up one boot and makes a note of the distinctive diamond pattern on the sole. The other pair bears the famous Cat's Paw brand mark. Alvin Dewey's decision not to release details of the footprints has paid off. The killers have been caught and they're in possession of the evidence that will convict them. As the new year begins, four KBI agents gather at the detective division of the Las Vegas City Jail. Harold Nye and Roy Church interview Hickok. Alvin Dewey and Clarence Dunce take Smith. As Hickok is led into the bland interrogation room, 
Agent Nye sees for the first time one of the men he believes killed the Clutter family. He's surprised how small Hickok is. As he'll later tell Truman Capote, I'd imagined a bigger guy, brawnier, not some skinny kid. He was 28, but he looked like a kid. Remember, Hickok believes the detectives want to talk to him about some relatively minor offenses. His guard is down. He's relaxed and he's cocky as he makes his statement. The agents let him run for a while. Then, out of the blue, Agent Church says, I guess you know we wouldn't have come all the way to Nevada just to chat with a couple of two-bit check chiselers. Agent Nye sees the veins pop out of Hickok's left temple, then follows up with the big one. Tell me, Dick, have you ever heard of the Clutter murder case? The color drains from Hickok's face. His eyes begin to twitch. He protests. Whoa, now. I'm no goddamn killer. Nye then catches Hickok in a lie. Hickok claims that on the weekend of the murder, he and Smith went to Fort Scott to visit Smith's sister. But Smith's sister has never lived in Fort Scott, and the post office where they supposedly inquired about her address is closed on Saturday afternoon, when Hickok claims they visited it. Hickok is led away to a holding cell to stew overnight. Meanwhile, agents Dewey and Dunce are interviewing Perry Smith. Of mixed Native American and Irish descent, Smith stands just over five feet tall, with short legs and small feet, though he has a powerfully developed upper body of a weightlifter. Dewey and Dunce use the same technique. They allow Smith to tell his own version of the events and then challenge him with the lie about going to Fort Scott. Finally, they drop the bombshell, accusing Smith of murdering the clutters. The next day, the detectives pick up where they left off. Agent Nye begins by confronting Hickok with the evidence of the footprints matching his and Smith's boots. It doesn't take long before Richard Hickok crumbles under the pressure. Perry Smith killed the clutters, he blurts out. It was Perry. I couldn't stop him. He killed them all. Faced with Hickok's betrayal, Smith gives his account of the events at River Valley Farm. He confesses to killing Herb and Kenyon, but insists that Hickok murdered Bonnie and Nancy. He'll later change his story, admitting to all four murders, though he will claim that he does so only to spare Hickok's family any further distress. Eventually, Agent Dewey and his team are able to piece together what happened at the Clutter family home in the early hours of Sunday, November 15th. Hickok and Smith targeted the Clutters because of what Floyd Wells has told Hickok about the mythical safe full of cash. In other words, the whole enterprise was based on bad information. The two men drove nearly 400 miles from Kansas City to Holcomb in order to commit the crimes. On the way, Smith urged Hickok to buy black stockings to put over their heads. Hickok refused, 
As far as he was concerned, they didn't need him. The reason being, they weren't going to leave any witnesses. As a side note, this shows that the murders were premeditated and always part of the plan, which explains why the killers had the presence of mind to pick up the empty shell casings. This wasn't a burglary which got out of hand. The clutters weren't killed in a moment of panic. If anything, it was a cold-blooded slaughter, dressed up as a robbery. It also suggests that Hickok was the dominant partner. The pair entered the house through an unlocked side door and started searching through the house using a flashlight. Shining the beam into one of the rooms, they woke up Herb Clutter and demanded to know where the safe was. But there was no safe, no money either. Eventually, the other members of the family woke up, and Hickok egged Smith on to kill him so that there would be no witnesses left. Herb Clutter was the first to die, followed by Kenyon. Both men agreed that it was Smith who killed him, Next, according to Smith, Hickok killed Nancy and then Bonnie. There's some evidence that Smith was conflicted about his part in the murders. He was the one who laid the cardboard on the cement floor so that Herb Clutter wouldn't get too cold. He also pulled the bed covers up around Bonnie and Nancy to make them more comfortable and placed a pillow under Kenyon's head. He also claims he prevented Hickok from abusing Nancy. So, looks like they were hoping to find thousands of dollars. But when one of the agents asks Smith how much money they actually took, he answers, between 40 and $50. Four people were terrorized in their own home before being mercilessly killed. Two young men threw away their own lives. For what? A handful of dollars. But maybe it was never about the money, just about terror and the power to inflict it. After killing the clutters, they drove east, stopping to bury the empty shells and the nylon cord and a roll of adhesive tape used to gag the victims. When investigators later undercover this vital evidence, the shells turn out to be a ballistic match for the shotgun taken from Hickok's parents' house. On March 22, 1960, the trial of Perry Smith and Richard Hickok for the murder of Herb, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon Clutter begins. The prosecution seeks and is granted the death penalty. The two men will spend more than five years on death row during that time, the director of Kansas Penal Institutions issues a ban forbidding any reporters from communicating with the condemned men, either by mail or in person. One writer alone manages to get around that prohibition, Truman Capote. He is granted extraordinary access to the prisoners. Capote's biographer, Gerald Clark, reveals how he succeeded in pulling off this coup. He quotes Capote as saying, if I hadn't gotten what I wanted, I would have had to abandon everything. So I went for broke and asked for an interview with this behind the scenes figure, who was a man of great distinction and renown in that state. What Capote said to this unknown man was, 
I'll give you $10,000 if you can arrange this. In other words, he bribed his way into Smith and Hickok's cells. Hickok isn't that interested in talking to Capote, but the writer builds a rapport with Perry Smith. Superficially, they have a number of things in common. Their short stature, unhappy childhoods, and, it seems, a love of words. But it's a difficult relationship. After all, what Capote really wants is for Smith's execution to go ahead. Only then can he finish his book. Smith and Hickok are hanged on Thursday, April 15th. Agents Nye and Dewey are among those who witness the execution. Truman Capote is also there. Perhaps he wants to offer comfort to the killer he had befriended. Or maybe he just needs to see the final act of the drama. Either way, Capote finally gets an ending to his story and in cold blood is published in 1966 to great acclaim and commercial success. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We travel to New York in 1912. Two bank messengers are robbed when the taxi they're traveling in is stopped by a masked gang. They're beaten unconscious, and when they come to, they find that the $25,000 they were carrying is gone. The cops only have one clue to go on. The taxi driver got a good look at one of the robbers and noticed he had a gold tooth. 60 of the city's finest detectives can't solve the case, so the NYPD turns to lowly police matron Isabella Goodwin. She's tasked with going undercover in a seedy district of the city to find out who the man with the golden tooth is. If she can do that without being made, she might just solve the biggest robbery the city of New York has ever seen. Find out if she does on the next episode of Detectives Don't Sleep. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts.